This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 149. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey everyone, welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. Really excited that you're here. Today, I have an incredible story for you by A.J. Osborne, who was going through his day, normal day, life's great, and within 24 hours, he's in the hospital, paralyzed from the neck down, not knowing if he's going to live through the, through the night. Amazing story, and how real estate essentially got him and his family out of that situation, and without it, it would have been very, very difficult to survive that financially. So he talks about that, and uh, he talks about his asset uh, class of choice, which is self-storage. So we're also going to talk a bit about how he got into that and how he grew to a million square feet. Amazing story. Let's get into it with AJ Osborne. Here we go. AJ, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Well, you look great, uh, but uh, you weren't that great a, a little while ago. In fact, you were paralyzed in, in critical condition for three months. Probably not yes. very pleasant to talk about, but it's a core part of your story. Do you mind kind of go back there and, and telling us what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's very interesting what happened and the effect it had on me. I, I was extremely, extremely fortunate that I turned out and I'm walking around today and I'm able to speak with you. And I'm also very fortunate that I decided to get into real estate five years ago because that's really what saved my financial life and frankly helped me have my recovery that I'm having. It, it's a long story, but so I'll cut right to the chase I, I about a year and a half ago plus, I started to get sick. I was traveling around. I ran a brokerage firm, our state's largest brokerage firm, and I had my uh, real estate company that I was running. So I was super busy running around, uh, living a very good life. Um, I was so, so blessed. And uh, one day, my legs started hurting, and I was out planting trees in my backyard, so I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, they're just sore. That night, something weird was going on. I couldn't even explain it. Went to the ER and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And they let me go. They're like, you're perfectly healthy. I kind of stumble out to the car and throwing up and I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. Within that evening, I was hurting so bad. I went and got in the tub and um, I went to get out and I couldn't walk. My feet and legs wouldn't work. Uh, so my wife drug me out of the tub. We went straight to the ER. Um, she had some neighbors come over with kids. I have four children and I, we just had a new baby. And we take our infant child to the hospital. They did tests on me for days. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. And before we knew it, I was losing my ability to even breathe. And uh, it was time. I, I, I couldn't breathe without help. They were going to put me on respirators and move me in. And uh, I remember my wife helping me, saying they were going to take care of me. They put me back in, knocked me out. Next thing I knew when I woke up, I had tubes coming out of my mouth. Everything was very blurry. Then I went out again. Don't remember anything. A little did I know I was going into a coma. And then when I woke up from that, I was staring at a wall, and I was paralyzed from the head down. I could not speak. I had to communicate through blinking. But I was completely 100% aware. I knew where I was. I knew what was going on. They could talk to me. Um, I was in more pain than ever imaginable. And I was hooked up to tubes, keeping me alive. And what had happened was it was something called Guillain-Barre. I'd never heard of this in my life. In fact, when they told us when we were in the hospital, I, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what they were talking about. 
and my white blood cells that attacked my nervous system, shut it completely down. My body couldn't operate on its own. And uh, I laid in a bed for months on a respirator. They cut me open. I laid in that state for a long time and I'm still partially paralyzed. I've been trying to come back from it. After months, I finally got off of uh, life support and was able to communicate and able to use my arms. They put me in a wheelchair that I went to rehab in a hospital that was designed for rehab for people like me. And then I stayed there for another month and they sent me home in a wheelchair and I lied in bed then for the next six months trying to learn to walk again. I had to relearn how to use my arms, eat, everything all over again. It took months before I sounded like myself again. Communicating was next to impossible. It was, it was the epitome of going to living life at the top to being as helpless and at the mercy of God as you can be. It was, I went from being very much in control of my life, or so I thought, and living a wonderful, wonderful life to being completely paralyzed from head to toe in a matter of days. It completely upended everything that I knew and my life and my wife taking care of our four children and our new infant. It was pretty crazy. So that's a crazy story. Your life's pretty good, actually maybe really good. And within 24 hours, you were like, can't walk anymore. That's amazing. How, so out of that, what became important to you and maybe what became less important to you? So, you know, at the end of the day, time became extremely valuable. The time with my children and the basic things, walking again, I, I, I dreamed of being able to walk on my own, wondering if I was ever going to do it at all. Very few people that are intubated on tubes and paralyzed and in a bed for as long as I do will ever walk again on their own. And I'm fortunate enough to where I can. I have some leg braces, but I'm getting better every day. My recovery is already better than most people will ever receive in their life. I, I was young. I was outgoing. I worked out, things like that. So that helped. But one of the things that I learned is, you know, there's a big difference. And I like to tell people this, there's a big difference between being rich and wealthy. And I really learned the difference in that moment very quickly. I was both at the time, but one went away. I was no longer able to earn an income and protect my family. That was gone. And my family became incredibly important to us. We had to drop everything we're doing. My wife couldn't work. She was taking care of me in the hospital. And she still had four kids to take care of. Our ability to sustain ourselves in a normal way was gone. And this idea, I, I made very good money. I was a consultant for large companies and I ran our firm. That all went away like that, just gone. I became on disability. And when you're on disability, you lose your employer-employee relationship so that you're no longer employed. And we didn't know how, how long that would last. We, we didn't know if I was going to be on disability for years, if, you know, how we were going to pay for our home, how we were going to take care of our children. That all comes up in the air. Now, for me, I had built a real estate company. We invested in self-storage. And we had built that up over five years because I felt a need to be truly financially independent. Working as a consultant, working any job, period, you're on a treadmill. And I knew that was going to stop. And mine did. <laughs> Literally, I could not run on a treadmill. So, you know, I lost this ability to produce my own income, but I had financial assets that paid the bills. They took care of our family. And my wife, she didn't have to worry about what are we going to do with our children? What am I going to do? I need to go out and get a job while you're here lying in the hospital connected to tubes. And the amount of freedom that that produced for us, it's, it's not even describable. 
I could lay at home and worry about things like walking again. My wife could take care of the kids and she could live a normal life and my children could resemble somewhat of a normal life uh, with my family at that time. It bought us time. It bought us freedom. It bought us everything that I did not have in a sal not only not a salary position, but working for yourself. So my clients, they, they feel bad, everything like that, but they can't continue paying you. They got to do business too. So even if I was self-employed, I lost that ability to earn that income. And it changed my outlook on where I need to be spending my time, where I need to be investing my money. And it changed my outlook on everything that people are doing, their goals, their setting. You know, with my kids, I'm like, okay, guys, we're working now. You have to get some kind of sustainable income. But two, you may want to do something else, which right now I really want to do things like spend time with my children. I want to go on vacations. I want to see the world. I want to experience life because I almost lost mine. And I need to focus on me. I need to work on getting better. And I cannot compound my results with time, experiences on a salary position. But when you have sustainable passive income coming that can grow without you, then I can compound not only my returns on my investment and my income, I can compound my life and my experiences. And that became very, very, very important. What would it have been like had you not had the real estate income? Even right now. I, I, so I work on my companies that I have, things like that, but I, I sleep 10, 12 hours a night. My body's still trying to recover. I, I couldn't hold a normal job at this point. And I do have disability income, but it's one fourth of what I was making. Four kids going to college. It wasn't going to pay for our lifestyle. We would have had to downsize our home and my wife would have had to go get a job. And then I being you know, stuck at home in a wheelchair would have had to try to take care of kids, which I couldn't drive. I couldn't take them to school. My family would have all had to chip in and take over our life, which they did, but in a way that you know, would be unrecognizable. My, my family's life would have ended as we knew it, and we would have had to do something else. My kids would have been uprooted. So it's pretty amazing you had at this time some income from real estate, but why did you get started in real estate in the first place? What were you trying to do at the time? So I realized pretty quickly, we were making good money, and the money coming in was from clients, but I, I realized pretty quickly that when those clients left, it was devastating. And I had to run to try to sell more, to make up for that income. And we were always trying to sell, always trying to sell. And that was really this treadmill effect. You could never grow past a certain point. And more importantly, you couldn't compound your returns. And I knew that I'm like, this just isn't sustainable. And there's too many fluctuations here. So I thought we need an alternative strategy here to try to compound returns. Because at the end of the day, I realized there's a difference between being rich and being wealthy. I realized I was rich. I had a large income, but I wasn't wealthy. I had to, I had to work and I had to work hard to earn that income. And there was no real end in sight. So although I made a good income, if I lost a huge client, my income was cut in half. I may be able to buy a lot of toys. I don't have a lot of freedom here. And I wanted to transition from being rich to being wealthy. I was able to earn a large income, but I, I needed to have time. And that was what was most important to me. I was having kids and I really wanted to get to a point where I could spend time with them. All right, let's talk about the difference between, between being rich and being wealthy. And you, you, I, I hear you mentioning time a lot in that context. Can you really talk about what you think now wealthy means to you? Yeah, 
if you look around and all the wealthy people that I associated, they acted very different. For once, they were very much in control of their lives. They own their assets and they own the revenue which came in. Their income was not generated from a working wage. It was generated from different assets that they owned. And I noticed that people that earned high incomes acted very differently. They bought fancy cars and they played a lot and they went bankrupt a lot. And that was not a path I wanted to go down. So instead, I wanted to shift and go on the wealthy spectrum where I owned my sources of income. Though my sources of income didn't own me, which is what had happened. In essence, I thought I, thought I was doing great. I was entrepreneurial. I was self-employed when really, actually, I just had a lot of bosses. All my clients were my bosses and they could fire me at any time and they did. So I was actually probably worse off than in, in a normal way because I didn't have any security. And I realized that although I did get to choose how I worked and when I worked, it didn't mean I couldn't work. It meant that if I wanted to earn more, I had to work way, 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 way more. And wealthy people, they could go on vacation, they could travel the world, they could pick up and leave, they could spend time with their kids. I didn't have that freedom. And that, that's really, to me, what the difference of being rich and wealthy is. One has freedom and the other doesn't. I knew people that were making $45,000 a year that had way more freedom than I did, making much, much more money than that. And I thought, this is backwards. I, I'm earning way more money than you are, but you live a life very, very different from me. And uh, that's when I really thought, you know, I need to turn this around and I need to change. I'm still young enough. I, I can do something that'll have long term effects and I can really build something, compound my wealth. And that's when I presented strategy and me and my partner started to get in on real estate. And we focused on a segment in which we thought we could really change, increase income and drive value. That was self-storage because we were really good at operating a business. And we consulted with other businesses and we, I, I did mergers and acquisitions. And when we looked at this asset in this industry a while back, we thought, this industry is a little mixed up. They think that they have a real estate asset, but they don't. They have a business. And they're all acting as if it's a real estate asset. So we would go and buy self-storage facilities from people that were trying to get passive income or running it like a lease up and walk away. When I'm like, you got products, you got employees, you got all sorts of stuff. We would pick it up, we'd turn it into a business, turn around, and then we'd go do it again. And so we were able to effectively turn these self-storage facilities around, really, really move the dial up on value and income. And then we could repeat that process because it was no longer connected to my time. I could do it. We had people in place to run it. And I'd go and I'd do it again and again and again. We own 11 facilities over a million square feet across four different states. And now um, my time is spent on growing my income or going to Hawaii like I just got back from. That's how we spend our time. If I want to grow my income, yeah, I'll put in a little work. I'll grow it. And then that income will never leave me. So it's like I have a 11 large clients that pay me a lot of money that I own and they can never go away. And that is the difference of wealth. Income may fluctuate with market cycles, but I own them. And if I own them properly and don't have too much debt, don't over leverage myself and don't run them into the ground, they're mine forever. And they'll always pay no matter how much I work.
It's funny you say that, that people think that have a, a real estate business when they, in fact, they have a, a people business. But I think it's the same. I think commercial real estate investing is exactly the same, even multifamily. I, I truly believe there's no such thing as true passive income. Yes. Uh, unless you're earning interest or dividends. And even that, if you're not watching what's going on, that might be in jeopardy. Uh, I view multifamily investing as a people business. And, and I, I know that because. Uh, you get a good property manager, you got great results, and your life's great. If you have a bad property manager, your life is miserable as a result. So it really does come down to, to the people. Now, talk a little bit more about your strategy. So you come in there, what kind of properties do you buy? What what kind of problems do you see with, or, and obviously opportunities, and then how do you fix them? Well, let me give you a few examples. So we bought a facility that the state had actually owned, and they got in a lot of trouble about it, and people made them sell it. So we went and we bought it. And we bought it at auction and the appraisal that had came in, we bought above the appraisal and everybody was like, why are you doing? You're buying this above appraisal. But when we found it and we have our model and we know what we're doing and we underwrote it, we underwrote it at our business level. So what we do, what we get, more return for it. And the price was much, much higher because you'd had an asset that the state didn't actively manage. They didn't raise rates. They didn't sell products. There was no insurance. There was no customer service. There was no all sorts of things that we do in operating business. So we picked that facility up. We realized we don't want all tenants. We don't. So when, I, when we bought that facility, we paid $3.8 million for that facility. We pick it up. We immediately walked in. And I'm like, 30% of all of these tenants, I want out. And we did. What we did is we doubled the rates. 30% of them left because they were targeting a customer that was price sensitive. We didn't want a price sensitive. We wanted people that were looking for convenience security and quality. And those people would pay a premium for a better asset. We came in, we put $200,000 into it. We remodeled the office. We turned it into more of a stage. We sold insurance, a lot of different product types. We focused on customer service and we have a very good and effective marketing strategy because in self-storage, we have people coming in every day. It's, it acts more as retail than it does an actual asset class. I look and I'm like, what are our products sold? You know, what our, our average tenant, they're not all the same across the board. Some were selling every single size unit is a different product type, has a different demand and a different customer. We have everything from pumps for RVs. So when I look at the total value of a customer, and when we looked at that asset, the average life of a customer times its products sold, what insurance we have and the revenue coming from it equals the total value. That total value was very low on a spectrum in which we knew we could drive. So we picked it up and we increased the total lifetime value of those customers and our income over doubled in six months. The asset's worth nine, $10 million today. And it'll, it only took us about a year to do. And that, that was pretty common. And what we did, we'd pick up assets for 2.5 million. Five years later, that one asset that we bought, 2.5 million, a guy that was a builder, should have never been operating, 60% occupied. They only had part-time manager and they were doing everything by paper. We took it over, we expanded it. It's 150,000 square feet. It's easily worth 10 million today. The income off it is five times what it was. And you know, our background in business made it so we could spot out these inefficiencies and maximize them and we could compete in the marketplace. Because self-storage, you're competing with other self-storage facilities. It is not a lease up and walk away. They come month to month, people leave, and we had to be ready to market we had to be ready to work high on customer service, perceived value, and really increase that total um, lifetime value of the customer. And that's what we're good at. And so we could really turn these things around. 
How do you manage these things? So it, it's very uncommon, my understanding is that you can't choose from a handful of professional property managers to come in and manage self-storage, or maybe I'm wrong about that, but how do you go in there and actually manage these facilities? How do you actually implement the value that you're talking about from a people perspective? So we hired and trained people and we built this from scratch. So we started out in small facilities, didn't really work. In fact, our first facility, we lost money. Our first facility was a small facility. We lost money. We lost $60,000 on it. We took the money out and the debt that had been paid down. We went and bought a mid-sized facility and a second tier market. We turned around. We immediately sold it within six months, 15, 20 bucks a square foot, more than we'd originally bought it for. Took out a million dollars repeated that process, went and bought a large facility that could actually make us money. And we did the same thing as we we're talking about before. But when we're looking at the infrastructure that we have, we have four people that are full-time that they just oversee all the employees underneath us. So we have 28 employees that are running, but our uh, management company, which I guess essentially we are a management company, oversees all the facilities and they can run it. So they run it even while I'm traveling, while I'm away. And we had to build that out. Our policies and procedure manual, everything that we do, we built from scratch. We said, all you guys are doing these things wrong. We've made a lot of mistakes over three years, made a lot of dumb things. We've changed the course, how we deal with employees, how they deal with customers, all the legalities. And we built that in. And it, it took a while. It's not like we magically knew, but we knew what the problems were and how to fix them. And then we just figured out how to implement those things. And it took about four years. And then our team, that's the management team, the rock star. They go in, I can purchase the facility, they know exactly what to do, and we're moving day one. We're changing the marketing strategy, communications with the tenants. We have a full-time trainer that goes to the site to train the employees on the site. They have a communication, we do audits, we do all these kind of things. We had to build it all, and um, we did. We built that all, all from scratch. And our returns now are obviously much larger than they were back then because we're way more effective. But if you go out and hire a third-party management company, we have a lot of problems with that because we did that. First of all, unless they are specifically a self-storage company and they operate lots and lots and lots of self-storage facilities, mainly a REIT, they're probably going to do a pretty bad job. And we found that most local property management companies, if they don't specialize in storage, you are leaving so much money on the table please call me up and I'll buy it. But the REITs, they take a huge chunk of your money. I mean, at first glance, it looks like it's a regular 6% fee, but then you find out they're taking things like insurance and all these other fees on the side, which we're sitting here going, that makes up 10% of your return. Well, that doesn't work. I can't, I, I can't be taking, you're, they're taking a bulk of the return and lots of times that's on gross. So, at one facility, yeah, it probably makes sense to have a property management company, but then are you getting a very good return on your money? Oh, I, I don't know. And honestly, if you're going to get a standard return on your money, self-storage is a volatile asset class. People can move in and out anytime. So you really need to be able to make that work. And it, if you, you can, but you need to be able to figure out how to turn that around and then hire the property management people to come in after you've already done that. So that is, that's a sticky one and that makes or break it. That's the game. Self-storage, it's property management. Because once again, it acts like a retail center. Customers are coming every day. How are you getting customers to come in? What customers are you getting? What price should you pay? And what value is there? What products, what systems do you have in place to execute those agreements? How do you do the foreclosure process? All that stuff needs to be in place. If the person is messing up on that, 
the spread and a bad operator and a good operator is where we make our money. Yeah, that's that's it. That's our business model, and that's where that's we exactly make it. right. I mean, it, it takes a little while to get going to yes, figure out, but once you have it going, it becomes cookie cutter, and your returns are incredibly large. You mentioned uh, in the beginning that you were buying some uh, smaller properties that you shouldn't have. Is there maybe a sweet spot or a minimum size where you say, "Hey, for this kind, you know, I can start making money, and for something smaller, I will start struggling." So there are ways to run and operate smaller facilities. They are very, very hard to do, and I'd be very careful about doing them. And the reason being is large facilities and small facilities expenses are the same. So if I have a 30,000 square foot facility and a 100,000 square foot facility, I still have to have all the same things. I have to have a property manager. I have to have you know, employees. I have to have all those things. So the only thing that goes away is your margin. Now, there are things that you can do in smaller facilities and people are doing with new technology, but it's not hands-off. You got to be operating it and you can make it work, but you need to be prepared to understand how to implement those things. I target a 60,000 square foot facility as low as I will go. And then up to 150,000 square foot facility. Once you get into too big of facilities, we believe, and as we've seen in the market, you're really watering down your returns because you're flooding the market with so much mm. product. So if you get a 250,000 square foot facility, you're going to get a lot less return per square foot than I am on an 80 or 90,000 square foot facility. That doesn't mean it can work. I have friends that do mega facilities at 300,000 square feet and they kill it. But you really need to know that market. You have to be in there at a really low cost and you have to have a strategy dialed in for that because you make a mistake and you're in big trouble on those big facilities. And smaller facilities, you just really need to know what you're doing because it's hard to make money out. Now, there are a lot of advances in technologies that we're using and implementing. For example, I bought a bankrupt Super Kmart. We turned it around and we converted that into a large storage facility. At that facility, you can rent your unit online and that runs off an app on your phone. And if you're in California and you're moving to Nevada where it's located, I could rent it online. I could drive to Nevada. I can open the gates with my app, walk in, my door will sense that you're there. It'll unlock your door. You can open it up, move your stuff in and leave. It's all done online and paid. Now, I still have employees there because it's a big facility and operating and there was a lot of problems moving it in, but there are things that you can do to manage a smaller facility today that you couldn't do 15 years ago, but um, it's still going to be hands-on and you have to be ready for problems, but you can't have a person working there or you're paying a person. You're not paying yourself. Yeah. I noticed your website is uh, Cashflow to Freedom. Yes. What, what do you feel is your mission right now? So with Cashflow to Freedom, I was sitting there in the hospital and I was looking out the window. Snow's falling. I'm paralyzed from the waist down. And I was thinking about my wife and the kids because it was Christmas. And I wasn't with them. It was Christmas Eve. And I was thinking about, you know what? They're going to have some awesome presents. It's going to be a wonderful Christmas for them. And I just was like, wow, I, I'm so fortunate that I'm in that position. It was almost overwhelming that I didn't even have to be with my children. And I knew my wife could buy them Christmas presents. And in any other circumstance outside of, you know, having our real estate portfolio, that would probably not be the case. It would be a very, very scary Christmas for us. And I thought, this is so important. It just kind of overwhelmed me at how important it was that I had sustainable cash flowing assets that paid even while I wasn't there. And I realized that's everyone. 
everyone will stop being able to work at some point. And that's what we call retirement. How are you going to get there? Well, in today's age, if you're making $45,000 a year and you think that somehow you're going to stack up enough money to get you enough return on three or five or 6%, or you're going to dwindle that down through retirement and it's going to last you 30 years, the math doesn't add up. I mean, it really doesn't. You need to have other strategies in place to be generating income that is not off a working wage. And I'm very, very passionate about that. And I've done everything. We're online businesses to consulting companies, things like that. And I'm like, I need to help others and show them how they can generate cash flow that will come in every month and that they can live off of, whether that's protection, like it was for me, or whether that's simply you want to do other things in life than work for somebody else. Because that's how I am. I, I definitely don't want to spend my life working for somebody else and making them money. I've always had an issue with that. And that's really what cash flow to freedom is about. It's how to transist off that earned income and get into a passive income state and gain freedom. That's cool. And you and I share that same mission. And for all you guys listening, watching around that, that feel self-storage is calling their name right now. AJ is the guy to, to connect with. And that, uh, with the, how do people connect with you, AJ? So really, if you go to Cash Flow to Freedom, it's cashflow2 with the number freedom.com. You can go in there, contact and send me an email. It goes directly to me reach out. I'm more than happy to talk to people, see what they're doing. I'm trying to drop a few different calculators. There's different blog posts that I've written on all sorts of different subjects and I'll continue to be doing it. And I'll also be launching a podcast so you can reach out to me anytime on there and, and I can get back in touch with you. So final words here a little bit. So the average you know, person watching, listening to this stuff, obviously you may not have gone through the same event you have. That doesn't mean that one can't learn from your event and the insights you've, you've gathered. Final words of, of thought about what someone should be thinking about or, or doing right now. You know, I'm very big on personal independence and you should be developing a system to generate returns on a consistent basis even if that's the littlest thing at all. If you're interested in real estate, start small and grow it. We started with small facilities and we grew it into a million square feet. We had to learn. It didn't come quick. We had to learn from our mistakes. We had to build. But now from those, we have what we have. You have to get started and you have to learn. And if you're going to fail, remember, we lost $60,000 on our first deal. Just keep going. Learn from your mistakes and, and you'll get to that point. And it, you'll have better odds getting to a state of financial freedom on your own than you're ever going to have giving it to the stock market. You can do it on your own. And with other people, you're kind of gambling. AJ, awesome story, man. Thanks for inspiring us. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Wow. Is that an amazing story? I mean, it's like the best story I've ever heard of where real estate really came and saved the day. Without that, um, and by his own admission, he wouldn't have known what to, what to do with that. What can we learn from this experience? Do we have to be near in a coma for three months to learn that we need to become wealthy and not just rich, that we need to figure out a way to control our time so we can do whatever we want when we want to do it. Hope that was a valuable lesson to you guys today. One of the things I'm really excited about is our, our mentoring program. I mentioned it from time to time here. And the reason I'm excited about it, I found out recently that of the 11 students who signed up very recently, in just a few months, nine of them have, have deals under contract. Now, I, I knew we have a pretty good program, but wow, I'm amazed by that. And it's really a testament to the systems we built, but even more importantly, to all of our mentors. All of our mentors are full-time multifamily investors, some whose names you might even recognize. And we're honored and privileged to work with these people 
who are very difficult to attract uh, and, to, and to keep on. And they really share my passion to helping people do their first deals. And that's what we're all about. So if you want to check out our mentoring program, it's definitely an investment in yourself. You can find out more at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor and schedule a free strategy session with us to explore if that's that's right. Anyhow, really, really excited about, about that program and uh, really excited about all the people that are doing their first deals and I'm getting better at tracking those. So if you're listening to this stuff and you have been somehow influenced by whatever I do, what we do on the podcast or some of our courses or mentoring, send me an email at michael at themichaelblank.com and let me know about your first deal. Where was it? How many units was it? And how maybe we have helped you uh, do that first deal. Again, it's my mission and I love hearing that. And uh, you might even come onto the podcast as well. If you, by the way, have quit your job in any aspect, whether you're influenced by it or not, but if you quit your job with multifamily investing, then you are definitely candid for coming on a podcast and I want to talk to you. All right, guys, appreciate it. Catch you guys in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.